Hi, this is Dr. Diana Glyer. I'm the author of Bandersnatch and The Company They Keep, and you are listening to Pints with Jack. I see now how the Lord of the silent world has bent you. There are laws that all now know, and one of these is the love of kindred. He has taught you to break all of them except this one, which is not one of the greatest laws. This one he has bent till it becomes folly, and has set it up, thus bent, to be a little blind Oyarsa in your brain. This is Pints with Jack, Season 6, Episode 23, War of the Worlds, Out of the Silent Planet, Chapter 20. Well, welcome, everyone. Here on Pints with Jack, we're reading our way through the works of C.S. Lewis. I'm Father Andrew, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-hosts, David and Matt. This season, we find ourselves among the stars, reading through the first of C.S. Lewis's science fiction trilogy, Out of the Silent Planet. In today's chapter, Weston's philosophy of life is articulated with its greatest clarity, thanks chiefly to Ransom, In today's text, we'll hear what it is that Weston wants and what price he is willing to pay, and what price he is willing others to pay in pursuit of his dream. We have several choices for today's episode title. Since Ransom spends much of the chapter translating, we could have gone with The Interpreter, a 2005 movie starring Nicole Kidman, who I understand is a Lewis fan. Good movie. And starring Nicole Kidman, an interpreter at the United Nations who overhears an assassination plot. The classic 1996 movie Independence Day, starring Will Smith, was also a contender, but we put it to a vote in the Slack channel, and the winner was War of the Worlds, a movie about planetary colonization, originally made in 1953 and most recently remade in 2005 with Tom Cruise. Well, gentlemen, welcome to Chapter 20. How are you both doing? Wonderful. Well, first, I think the Slack channel made the right choice with that. You know, thinking about this, this is where in this episode we see everything come together of Weston's philosophy. And there's a desire to colonize and to continue colonizing, continue if we're going to see all that. I don't want to give away too many spoilers. But anyways. I, I did not realize that's what they chose. I checked the Slack once every like five or six days. It was kind of bad. I looked and I saw one of our Slack members made this beautiful reference to G.K. Chesterton, Carlotta. And then I made a comment back asking. I was curious to dive deeper. And then I looked. Oh, she made that like eight days ago. <laughs> I was so delayed with it. It was a great comment. Oh, that's great. Anyway, sorry. I am doing well, Andrew. I'm doing well. I'm looking forward to today's recording. This oh. is... This is a fun, I, I, I said in the beginning, before we started recording, I'm excited listeners to have Andrew leading this as a scholar. And also really, as we've said before, the blend of David and I with, he's got David's intellectual prowess. I don't have that, but he's also got, I think what I tried to do is make it, bring it to like everyday spiritual practices and stuff with Andrew does both of those kind of well. And so I think this being not the final chapter, but really bringing it all together. There's just going to be so much here. So I'm very excited. Yeah, that's great. David, how about you? How are you doing and what's going on lately? I am great. Spring is in full force here in Lacrosse. I'm also really enjoying my new job. So life is pretty good at the moment. 
I actually have a couple of pieces of news which might be of interest to our listeners. One of our Patreon supporters, J. Reese Bradley, released book four in the Brumbletide series, Brumbletide and the Queen's Doctor's Story. And the other piece of news is that Murphy Thelen has finally released the last part in his movie adaptation of Out of the Silent Planet, with voice acting from two prominent C.S. Lewis podcasters. <laughs> uh, it's, did prominent mean that we stick out or that we're stuck up? <laughs> um, it was a joy to do it, and I love what Murphy did with that. And it was, uh, it was fun to be Oyarsa for a day. Well, things are clicking along here. I'm working on my uh, Owen Barfield class and finishing that up by the end of the month and um, clicking along at work, just uh, looking forward to getting some uh, some time. As soon as we get done with today's episodes, we're off to uh, Sarasota to see my wife and her family. And so, yeah, just clicking along very well. Had a actually lovely uh, discussion with a priest in the diocese about half an hour away. We met at a fantastic a British pub, very authentic, old speckled hen and fullers on tap and had a fabulous lunch. And as his rule of life, he reads three books at the same time, a theological, a fiction, and a historical book. And um, all three are Lewis books right now. So we had <laughs> a great conversation and maybe perhaps a pint of beer. And speaking of drinking, what's everybody drinking today? Well, I'm having another beer. And in honor of Western's speech on Meldalorn, I'm drinking a bottle of Goose Island 312, since Western is on an island and he's acting like a goose. <laughs> there you go. What about mm. you, Matt? Oh, I'm looking forward to this. I think I might have had this on the, the podcast before, but it's the Kirkland Spiceside Single Malt 18 Year. Yeah. That is, uh, I believe, Alexander Murray and Company. Uh, out of Aberdeen, Scotland. I know this isn't our final episode of the season, but it just felt celebratory with the big, really, this is bringing the book home in a big sense. And so I got very excited for this. <laughs> so I decided I'm going to pour a little nicer stuff. Excellent. Well, I'm in the last of my little bottles, and this is a 15-year-old Glen Moray. They say uh, these whiskeys are admired but never enjoy great glamour. And the house style is grassy with barley notes and aperitif. And no smoke in it, so I'll muddle my way through. So, just admire that amber real quick. Ooh, there you go. I know, right? There we are. Look at, look at the difference, Andrew, between those, those, those ambers. Yeah. Well, that's not age necessarily, but we'll see how you like yours. It's just beauty. I agree. As we've noted throughout the book, language is very important and out of the silent planet. So we've been toasting in different languages each week, and today we're doing it in Portuguese, Saude. And today we're going to be toasting top-tier supporter Todd Frazier. So, Todd, may this spring be a season of new life for you, and may that new life carry you throughout your day and your week. Saude. 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 Oh, that's good stuff. It's not mm. quite like McCallan 18, but it's also about a third the cost and it's really <laughs> good. Wow, it's lovely. Mine is actually, for not being a smoky, it's pretty nice. Well, so I want to thank uh, publicly David's assist this week. I'm finishing up a grad class with a with a huge deadline and 
um, some travel and things this month. And so he came in and saved my chili. And so here is the David's 100-word summary read by me. <laughs> Ransom is kidnapped by Weston and Divine, brought to Mars as a sacrifice, and after escaping his captors and learning the local language, both Ransom and his abductors are brought before Oyarsa, the angel-like ruler of the planet. Oyarsa hears the story of Ransom's kidnapping. Then Weston makes a fool of himself, trying to intimidate and bribe those present. Oyarsa sends Weston away to be dunked in cold water. Then, a funeral is conducted of the Martian natives killed by Weston and Divine. And our last episode ended as a bedraggled Weston was being brought back following his compulsory shower. So, there we are. Uh, and I edited so that there was one extra word, so we're exactly at 100. So, I hope everybody's excited <laughs> about those efforts. Ah, uh, well... As we begin, the Hross, who supervised Weston's head washings, a Hross called Hnu, but I, <laughs> I wanted to pronounce it like Weston must have pronounced it. No! <laughs> um, he continues a slight complication. He explains a slight complication they encountered while trying to cool Weston's head with cold water. So what happened, guys? What did he do? Well, it's not brilliantly clear, but I originally thought that Weston's hat fell off. But you had a better suggestion looking at the, at the show <laughs> notes. I think you're right. Yep. I think that it's a toupee. It's described as, oh, something made of animal fur and hair, and it flopped off of his head. Um, but I think that I think that Weston was wearing a toupee, and it got washed off his, off his head. That would so fit with his vanity, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And pompousness and pretentiousness looking at the text it doesn't say hair it does say the covering made of the skin of some creature yeah so which you could see them mistaking skin as a hairy skin but i think it's far funnier as well so let's just go with toupee <laughs> uh -huh. well and i think that they all will except for the fiffle triggy they all have um hairy skin so yeah mm. let's uh let's think that but it did lead to a dilemma because they weren't sure do they now have to wash him again without the hat or toupee? And they decided to err on the side of caution and dunk him another seven times. And Weston doesn't appear to have been very appreciative of this. The text says, The creature talked a lot between the dips, and most between the second seven, but we couldn't understand it. <laughs> well, and David, didn't you say last episode seven had something to do with like removing, washing scripturally the face? Because I thought it was waterboarding and you guys disproved that. And I think this more confirms exactly what you guys were saying. Although I like my little waterboarding, but yes. <laughs> but didn't you say there's some sort of ceremonial cleaning that happens? And so it was very much like a sort of like a till we have faces reference of just like the face coming off and him being more honest now. And, and, and <laughs> Andrew alluded to Naaman the Syrian, his baptism of sorts in the Jordan when he's healed of his leprosy. Mm -hmm. that's the one and so I, I i got a little bit of a sense of until we have faces here where oyarsa was getting frustrated that he just keeps lying not being honest not being transparent we are going to see here that he eventually just like babbles the truth comes out here's everything i'm going for and it feels like this face washing kind of did that took away this fake facade and just like all right let's just 
cut through the BS and get to the real stuff. A lot of times washing is an invitation from um, dishonesty into honesty. I mean, it has kind of baptismal overtones in Lewis. You think about Eustace and his undragoning. Uh, but then in the last Narnia that Lewis wrote, so probably 10 years after this, uh, you've got that marvelous passage about the unfortunately named Uncle Andrew. Um, <laughs> and in the in the creation of Narnia, the uh, animals uh, go to do this to him. And so it says the magician's nephew, the elephant walked quietly to the river, filled her trunk with water, and came back to attend to Uncle Andrew. The sagacious animal went on doing this till gallons of water had been squirted over him and water was running out the skirts of his frock coat as if he had been for a bath with all his clothes on. In the end, it revived him. He awoke from his faint. What awakening it was. But we must leave him to think over his wicked deed if he was likely to do anything so sensible. And so this <laughs> is, I think, a baptismal, kind of a baptismal metaphor. It's an invitation to change your path when being dunked in water. Mm. It's I don't think Lewis had this in mind necessarily, but an echo is certainly Peter, who looks in faith at Christ, walks on the water, but when he takes his eyes off the Lord and looks at the water, he uh, he gets a, a, a quite good dunking himself. <laughs> and so maybe there's this kind of invitation, spiritual invitation that uh, immersion has uh, offers to folks. I never thought of it before, but St. Peter gets his baptism not through faith, but through doubt. Yes. He takes his eyes off Christ and gets a wash. <laughs> but I really liked your Uncle Andrew example, because Weston also looks ridiculous at the end of it. He's soaking wet. His uncut hair is plastered across his face. He's bright red. It describes it as the color of a ripe tomato from being repeatedly dunked in ice cold water. And uh, so he's then just standing there trying his best to look like a martyr. Yeah. Yeah. With the description of his long, lank hair, it seems like he's got a big, a big comb over working too. This is the point when in the podcast, we need to be sponsored by Keeps. By Keeps? It's uh, a hair, uh, a stop you being bald cream. Oh, I've never had to look up that. <laughs> <laughs> You've got a good head of hair, Andrew. Uh, be grateful. It's all, it's all in the genes. And yes, I am grateful. Well, knowing what Weston's like and having seen the Fiffletrig's ability to instantly disintegrate bodies, Divine calls out, uh, warning Weston to behave himself. The only thanks what Divine receives is an accusation from Weston of him going native too. So they're already at each other's throats. Um, Oyarsa interrupts their argument, informing Weston uh, that he will now present, uh, the Oyarsa will now present his conclusions. And so what does Oyarsa think of Weston? Well, he says that Weston knows a lot about physics and he's learned how to build a spaceship, but that his mind is otherwise animal-like. And Oyarsa says that although Weston was treated with honor when he first came to Mars, his mind was consumed with fear. And as a result of this, he thought Ayasa meant him evil. And yes. because he thought so little of others, he was prepared to hand over ransom to be sacrificed to save his own skin. Absolutely. And, you know, there's, there's this kind of argument between them. Oyarsa seems to change color or something. There's an almost imperceptible change in the light when Oyarsa silences them. 
Uh, it reminds me a little bit of Aslan growling when he doesn't like the, the, the tendency of a conversation. And even his demand for silence makes Divine crumple up and fall back to the ground. Um, and so while uh, Weston is red, Divine turns white and panting. <laughs> and Oyasa says that he knows that Weston intends evil for the inhabitants of Malacandra. Mm -hmm. He's killed some, he's going to kill more. He says he's actually going to kill them all. And Weston doesn't care if a creature's Hanau, or even if it's a member of its own species. And he concludes his assessment by saying, I did not know that the Bent One had done so much in your world, and still I do not understand it. If you were mine, I would unbody you even now, but I do not yet resolve to do this. It is for you to speak. Let me see if there's anything in your minds besides fear and death and desire. Hmm. And when I read that, I thought, okay, what's the opposite of fear, right? But faith or courage. And what's the opposite of death? You know, our lives should be filled with life. And the opposite of desire um, is to abandon our desires, to say, not my will, but thine be done. So what they have is fear and death and desire, but what they should have is faith and and life and submission. And I love how imperious Oyarsa is. It's, it reminds me of the Numinous. He's got this enormous power, and he doesn't really care much for all three of them. Even Ransom, who's kind of a hero, uh, Oyarsa doesn't seem to care for. She's much more considerate of, of his own now. So Weston turns to Ransom, accuses him of betraying the human race, going native. Well, and when Ransom tells him to be quiet and he sinks down, it reminds me of uh, Jesus saying, I am in the garden and this kind of immediate response where people fall on their faces. And so I'm not quite sure why the color changes, but I think what we have here is a case of the numinous. We've got a case of enormous power. It's good and it's a little disinterested in who we are. Um, it's more concerned with its own goodness. Yeah, what do you all make of that? I hadn't thought of Jesus before. I was thinking some of the angelic visitations. I think of Jesus I, all the time. I know you do. You're a better <laughs> Christian than I am. But wow, but, no. but I, I think I think your example is even better. Jesus, it's it's like a, a slight flex of his power, and mm -hmm. those around him are overwhelmed. Or or one might even compare it to the Transfiguration, but one isn't prepared to see Christ in glory. Yeah, yeah. And even that vision of the glory. I mean, Moses could only see the back part of God's glory, um, and otherwise he would have died. And what do you real quick make of, um, I'm curious, Andrew or David, when Divine, after he fell to the ground, crumpled and he gets back up, what do you make of him being white? White and panting. Like, is it just, is it meant to suggest that he was made clean by this imagery or just he wasn't made clean but it's just such a bright light it just made him white from a silhouette sort of no blood ran from his face he's terrified yep i think he's terrified i think it's the fear of the lord so what's the white in paint oh just he's he lost all i see what you mean he just became pale yeah i think the color drained from his face ah and yeah. so almost like someone who's incredibly bent in the presence of the divine. Oh, sure. You're, you're going to, yeah. Okay. That makes sense. I like that. Yeah. So then we have this kind of long pompous speech by Weston. And I thought it was incredibly clever the way that Lewis translated it. And, you know, I mean, Lewis, we know is gifted in kind of translating into different languages and listeners, if you hear any noise in my background, 
are having a huge rainstorm right now. So there's this kind of long pompous speech and then Ransom struggles to interpret as best he can. Listeners, I wish you could see our show notes and I, I wish that I had thought of doing this every single time I had read Out of the Silent Planet. But David puts Weston's speech and then Ransom's kind of uh, difficult translation uh, of it right next to it. This right is next. so brilliant. And as David points out, and is always true, there's a reference to Till We Have Faces <laughs> from uh, book two, chapter four, when the time comes at which you will be forced at last to utter the speech, which has lain at the center of your soul for years, which you have all that time, idiot-like, been saying over and over, you will not talk about the joy of words. And so, yeah, there's a whole language thing going on here. So mm. what do you make of this speech? Weston clearly sees this as his heroic closing monologue. Mm -hmm. We're told that he believed that the hour of his death was come and he was determined to utter the thing, almost the only thing outside of his own science, which he had to say. He cleared his throat, almost struck a gesture and began. Dun, da, da, da. What I even put in, in the very first paragraph right after what David just read, like this is summing up his entire worldview. You know, mm -hmm. first he puts bearing on my shoulders. You know, he thinks he has some greater mission that he's living, which we're actually going to see later is a, a bit of a net positive for him. He's not pure evil, a bit of disorderedness. Uh, but he then describes how their lesser, you know, tribal life, Stone Age weapons, beehive huts, their civilized science, medicine, law, armies, architecture, commerce. And because of that, the higher has the right to supersede the lower. And this mm. just goes back to what we talked about in the very beginning. It's it's that perverted worldview that he has. And so he still is operating on that framework as of right now. And the translation process unveils the snobbish and brutal nature of his worldview once it's stripped mm. of its rhetoric. Mm. And what he is saying mm. is presented in plain terms. I like that. Once it's stripped of its rhetoric... Good phrasing, David. And you know what? Not to quibble, but if ever there was a place to quibble about the word, I'm not sure if it's rhetoric as much as it is oratory. Sure. Right? Because mm -hmm. he's not trying to make this kind of convincing argument. He's trying to give this magnificent speech. And I hadn't thought about it until I just brought this up. But that's one of the, I think one of the things that Lewis is pillorying here um, and making fun of is his father's uh, gift of oratory. And his mm. father gave police court speeches and um, political speeches. And his father didn't know that using that style on two little boys would not be effective. But that's <laughs> one of the things that Lewis mentions about him. And then he has this kind of oratorical style. And the substance of his argument, I don't think is necessarily that great, but he's really kind of doing it as pompously as he can. Can we get a taste of some of these translations? I really want to see just a few of these. I think these are brilliant that you did this, David. So the listeners, we just teased them that you put this whole thing together. We've got to give them a little taste of it. I, I will put it in the show notes, but go for it. To you, I may seem a vulgar robber. I'll take the other, I'll take the other part. Oh, yeah, you take the other one. Among us, Oyarsa, there is a kind of now <laughs> who will take other now's food and and things when they are not looking. He says he's not an ordinary one of that kind. <laughs> but I bear on my shoulders the destiny of the human race. He says 
What he does now will make very different things happen for those of our people who are not yet born. <laughs> Listeners, I so just, good. I absolutely encourage you, read this out loud with a friend. Call a friend and have them do the parts. Or, you know, if you're really good, get a few friends, do a table read, appoint somebody to be the narrator, and just somebody be Weston, somebody be, a, a, you know, Ransom, somebody be Divine, somebody be Oyarsa, and then somebody else be the narrator. It'll just pop right off the page. That's brilliant. We're going to do one more because I really like this one. Okay. Right, second from the bottom. Life is greater than any system of morality. Her claims are absolute. He says, began Ransom, that living creatures are stronger than the question whether an act is bent or good. No, that cannot be right. He says it is better to be alive and bent than to be dead. No. He says, he says, I cannot say what he says, Oyarsa, in your language. <laughs> <laughs> this is so good. All right, we can proceed. Well, and uh, and I put in the notes, and perhaps David will include the... Um, We'll include the link. Uh, Lewis wrote a poem about these themes. He was very interested in it. And one is, one is called Evolutionary Hymn. And I've seen Francis Collins, the uh, former director of National Institutes of Health, Anthony Fauci's boss, um, lead us in this song in Oxford with his guitar. And it's Evolutionary Hymn, but it's to the tune of Joyful, Joyful. So it's lead us evolution, lead us up the future's endless stair. Chop us, change us, prod us, weed us, for stagnation is despair. Groping, guessing, yet progressing, lead us nobody knows where. So he's pillorying the idea of, of, uh, of progress. And he's got all these verses of it. It's, and it's just, it's the same sort of thing that, that Weston is spouting. Yeah, it's all that white man's burden stuff. Yes. Clearly. I read that book. Um by William Easterly. Uh, but anyways, at the very end of this section, before we go on to the next one, that, that's pretty much what he says here, that right after the part that you just read, actually, Andrew, I cannot translate that in your language. Mm -hmm. He goes, but he goes on to say that the only good thing is that there should be very many creatures alive. He said there were many other animals before the first men, and the later ones were better than the earlier ones. So there's, there's right there, it's kind of something, his assumption is as long as we can keep this race continuing that a thousand years, 10,000 years, 20,000 years from now, there'll be even better ones than us today, I assume is what he's implicitly saying. And so that's this worldview that he is willing to go to extreme lengths for. Well, and I don't know if he's all that concerned with better. I think that he's just concerned with more and, and that's part of where he, he gets into trouble. So then um, Weston goes on after uh, Ransom translates and begins his next section with she. And Ransom has to interrupt and say, who's she? And oh, well, it's life, of course. And when Weston speaks of life as a person, what do you think he's trying to say? It's really evocative of the Alain Vital, mm -hmm. the impersonal life force guiding humanity. Lewis addresses this in a bunch of places. We spoke about it back in season one, where he says this in Mere Christianity. I ought to mention life force philosophy or creative evolution or emergent evolution. The wittiest expositions of it come from the works of Bernard Shaw, but the most profound are those of Bergson. People who hold to this view say that the small variations by which life on the planet evolved from the lowest forms to man, not due to chance, but to the striving or purposiveness of a life force. And Lewis goes on to say that 
if this life force has a mind or is a mind, we're really talking about God. But if there isn't a mind, we've got a major problem. He says, what is the sense in saying that something without a mind strives or has purposes? This seems to me their fatal flaw. And Jack wrapped it all up by saying that people find such a philosophy attractive because it gives them the emotional comfort of believing in a sort of God, but none of the unpleasant consequences. David, I'm also impressed with your dictation. I mean, purposiveness, that must have, I mean, you just said that beautifully first try. Got it right, first time, yeah. <laughs> Definitely didn't edit that out as I tripped over that. Well, and then there's this kind of fruitless end of progress. And I love how Oyarsa kind of tracks it down, um, especially in these coming passages. Uh, and there's this kind of unthinking, and you see it ruling today, this unthinking goal of progress but progress comes from the Latin gradus gradi, gressus, which means to step. And progress means to step towards, step forwards. But nobody asks, where are we stepping forward to? And what are the implications? I mean, what are the ramifications of what may happen? And, uh, and that's certainly something that's going on here. If you're on the edge of a cliff, you don't want to step forward. No, backwards is forwards. <laughs> and, and can we quickly just highlight, I, I David, I, I'm so glad you brought that in. I didn't think about this, and I was just focused on your dictation there. That statement from Mere Christianity of it gives us the emotional comfort of believing in God and none of the less pleasant consequences. And I, I feel like the reason I wanted to pause there for a second is that's, first of all, that's very applicable to today. I do believe as people have moved away from faith and religion, they have found an emptiness that's now come full circle towards more of a modern day spirituality, trying to fill that void with something more than just politics and atheism. But it's landing at this spot of a spirituality, but it's not, I never really thought about how phrasing that. And I liked how you put that. It doesn't have any of the of the less pleasant consequences, but I'd, I'd also push back on that statement. I'm curious your guys' thoughts. The less pleasant consequences to some degree are pleasant. It's like eating a super healthy diet isn't really pleasant when you're eating the food in the moment, but it's for your benefit. Like your life is more pleasant overall. Mm -hmm. Yes, you have to be disciplined. You're not eating the pizza and you're just eating chicken and vegetables and some rice. It's like, man, it's kind of boring, but you're full of energy. Your health is great. You've got an incredible just health and wellness and a vitality to life. And I feel like the, the the quote unquote less pleasant parts of Christianity do that. Like I almost don't like that phrasing because it makes it seem like, oh, we've got to do with these arbitrary negativities, but we get to believe in this God. It's like they're kind of for our benefit. What do you guys make of that? Well, and it's one of the good things about Weston is that he's willing to delay or even deny his own satisfaction. And these are good things. And so we see here. Um, and Oyarsa pronounces a verdict soon, and I can't wait to get to that. The difference between um, how bent um, Weston is versus how bent Divine is. And there are some positive aspects of what he's, what he's doing, but he's misguided. And of course, we have the law of first and second things all over the place here. Um, and they're clearly choosing second things when they, uh, when they should be choosing first things or third things or fourth things. I'm going to bring that comment up soon. Do. So, when giving speeches on Earth, Weston would conclude by sinking into a chair to the sound of thunderous applause. However, lacking a nearby chair, he instead folds his arm and waits. 
So at the end of this great oratorical flourish, uh, what does Oyarsa make of Weston now? Well, this actually, I didn't realize we were jumping right to this part. This is the, the disordered, the first thing, second things. There's mm. almost a slight net respect in not net respect. There's still a net very much disrespect, but there's a slight respect that wasn't there in the beginning of all this. He's just thinking this is just a pure bent creature. And then he realizes because of a, a comment just before this where Weston says, I may fall, but while I live, I will not with such a key in my hand consent to close the gates of the future of my race. So he's willing to sacrifice himself for this worldview. So he's at least not hypocritical. He's He believes in this worldview. The problem is, is he's, we're about to see here, is he's putting a first or secondary thing as a first thing. He's putting mm-hmm. the love of humanity as the number one. Mm-hmm. It's still a good thing though. So that's kind of his point. Like he respects that he's willing to die for this and that it is still a good, but it can't be your be-all, end-all. And if it becomes a be-all, end-all, it becomes a god, and thus it becomes a demon. Oyasa recognizes that he's a mixed bag. He says, though your mind is feebler, your will is less bent than I thought. It is not for yourself that you would do all this. So Weston's selflessness, question mark, mm-hmm. counts somewhat in his favor. But Oyasa asks, Weston cares about mankind, but what even is that if it's not love for particular human beings or mm-hmm. the human mind or the human body? What's left? Mm-hmm. Oyasa says, strange, you do not love any one of your race. You would have let me kill Ransom. You do not love the mind of your race nor the body. Any kind of creature will please you if only it is begotten by your kind as they now are. It seems to me, thick one, appropriate name, uh, that what you really <laughs> love is no complete creature but the very seed itself. For that is all that is left. Yeah. That's a loaded phrase, of course. Lewis has got another poem where he talks rather graphically and even sexually, profanely almost, about um, flinging our seed into the sky and compares a rocket with a great erection. So I think that there's some hints of that here. And yeah, I love what that Oyarsa is doing, what we learned to do in, in The Four Loves. He's defining and describing, mm-hmm. and he's trying to get to. And by Oyarsa doing it, what Lewis is doing and helping us to do is to define the, uh, the parameters of the questions that divide us still. I mean, we're a year away from a presidential election, and we're going to have all kinds of nonsense and memes and, and headlines, but we need to really define what it is and describe what it is that we object to about those uh, those people whose politics we don't we don't agree with, and it's very charitable. And he's really kind of it's there's this kind of multivalent thinking that Oyarsa has, where he's acknowledging at least the good origins of some of what's going on. And I think that that's important to do when having having such conversations. And he's actually engaging what Westerners said. Whereas mm-hmm. when Oyasa makes this point that, hey, you say you love humanity, but you don't seem to really like humans, Weston basically responds by saying, if you don't understand, I can't help you. Yeah. Well, he's an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he's not meeting. And see, this is the kind of thing I think that happened at the Socratic Club all the time. Um, had the Socratic started? No, the Socratic club had not started at this point. But I think that this would have been the kind of debate that that began a few years later with the Socratic club, where 
atheists and and believers um, or Christians and non-Christians would really really get down to the nub of the argument and and examine what was actually being held and and here Oryars is doing it and he's doing it with some generosity which I think uh, is a is a very imitable uh, approach so his uh, Oryars's conclusion for what has happened of course is that Satan the bent one uh, the Oryars of the silent planet has corrupted Weston so how did he do that I mean, ultimately, he took a virtue and he perverted it. It says in the text, I see now how the Lord of the silent world has bent you. There are laws that all now know of pity and straight dealing and shame and the like. And one of these is the love of kindreds. This goes back to what I had mentioned earlier of the disordered love, putting a second thing first. And so mm-hmm. it, was, it was honestly really a clever thing rather than completely making him a broken individual he just twisted a a good to raise it up and i think what he's probably getting at is that's i don't think this is specifically said in the text but that's there's something really strategic about that because you can wrap your head around a good like how many times have people won logical arguments against you in life because what they're arguing for is a good, and the issue isn't that it's not a good. It's that what they're doing is they're making it like a god, a first thing, that it should be a second thing. And it's it's almost like a good rhetoric trick a little bit. So that's what you're, we're seeing the creativity of Satan. Well, and I know that I've been beating the drums for first and second things, but I also want to um, allow a little bit more space to do something besides a binary, you know, the good, better, best. And it's not... Um, necessarily just that he's chosen a second thing, but it's he's got an array of things, and he, yes, has highlighted one thing as better than all the others, but he has not, and, like, and you just said disordered loves, he's got disordered priorities, and so he needs to go back and reshuffle the deck. Um, he's got many different choices, and he's chosen one as good and the rest as bad. Um, and so the binary that he gets into is not a helpful thing, but also the gradation of ordering what should go first and what should go second, he completely misses out on too. And, and this is literally, this is when I say that C.S. Lewis taught me how to think, this is the kind of thing that I mean. I would never have thought to have done anything but good or bad and, or first and second things, but it's many things and it's the misordering of the things so that the first thing isn't the first thing and they're not in the correct order first second third and fourth but also elevating one thing and then disparaging all the others so there are two completely different things going on here and i would never have thought about things in that way unless i had read this passage and for weston satan has set up this love of kindred to be the most important thing and oyasa says thus bent to be a little blind Oyasa in your brain. Remember, that was what mm-hmm. the Psalms said. That was the problem with humanity. We try to be our own Oyasa. Mm-hmm. And a bent hanau can do more evil than a broken one. Mm. And we find this, this idea throughout Lewis. It's also in Orthodoxy in Chesterton. Uh, in Mere Christianity, Lewis says that none of our impulses, which are part of the moral law, should be set up as the universal ruler. Some of them at certain times we'll have to suppress. Others at other times we'll have to encourage. Yes, absolutely. I also like at the end of this, David, that says, but if you were mine, I would try to cure you. He doesn't really expand on that, but I'm just thinking of that idea that there's still a goodness in Weston. Like if we go back to what we were talking about earlier, he was trying to sacrifice 
Like his will was good. He's willing to surrender himself to a cause greater than himself. Just had an incredibly bent cause that was destructive and dangerous mm-hmm. for <laughs> life. Um, but there, there's something redeemable in there. I mean, imagine you take that individual who's willing to go to those lengths for the cause and you actually right order the loves and give him the proper mm. primary one. That's mm-hmm. incredibly that's an incredibly powerful servant for the kingdom. Mm-hmm. And so Lewis, I know, didn't go that deep into here and try to expand on that. But I kind of thought of that when he said, I would try to cure you. Mm. And all it would take would be another 14 baths. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, after Weston denies the existence of Maladil, Oyarsa gives his assessment of divine. And one would think that somebody who denies uh, Maladil would be much worse. A divine actually shows up worse. But part of that is it goes back to the to the Chesterton quote and to, to the four loves. When the real God comes, the false gods can take their proper place, right? It's the right ordering of the divine. And so although Weston denies Maladil, he still treats things like love of kindred as if it's divine. He, he, he idolizes it. And idolaters are, in some ways, I think, better than, what does Lewis say, cold-hearted prigs, right, who are only looking for themselves. I think that Weston is probably closer to Narnia than the dwarves who are for the dwarves, or Orwall, for that matter. And Jesus says that tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of heaven ahead of Pharisees. Yes. I'm not, I'm not sticking yeah. on this till we have faces nonsense. <laughs> but yeah, he's basically saying that divine he's like a talking animal he says if i if you were mine i would unmake your body for the hanau Mm -hmm. in you is already dead so whatever Mm -hmm. it is that makes you human apart from a dumb beast that has effectively died already yeah so oyarsa asked weston why he came because there's a key problem with weston's plan what problem does uh oyarsa identify in in what weston's here for he points out that Weston must know that Malachandra is nearer its death than Earth. And Weston says, that's fine. This is just a stepping stone. We'll go on from here. And so Oyasa comes back to him and says, well, all worlds die. And Weston says, well, we'll just keep moving. We'll just keep going. And then Oyasa points out that all worlds must eventually come to an end. Mm-hmm. And this is finally the thing that seems to shut him up. He doesn't have a response for it. Well, and like Eustace, Weston hasn't read the right sort of books, and one of the right one of the right sort of books is um, Norse myth, which begins with the idea of Ragnarok of the twilight of the gods. I mean, the gods, even in their heyday, know that their that their end is coming, and as kind of his own human god of humankind, Weston cannot conceive of that thing happening to him. Mm. And it's actually kind of funny because. Oyasa asks Weston, why do you think that we've never done your plan? Basically, we are the older planet. Why do you think the inhabitants of Malachandra haven't come to Earth and kicked you, you guys out? And <laughs> Weston says, ah, you just don't know how. And then Oyasa replies that actually we could do this thousands of years ago. Yeah, dude, have you met a fiffletrig? <laughs> well, it turns out that when Satan attacked Mars... He also put into the minds of some of the Malachandrians to do what Weston is trying to do. He was Scrutapian. Um, mm. But he, he suggested that they do this. They jump to another planet and replace its population. And Oyasa, this is, this is some of those chilling words that he says. He says, mm-hmm. uh, they were able to make skyships. By me, Maleldil stopped them. 
Some I cured, some I unbodied. Yeah. So there was basically a, re- a rebellion of sorts. Mm-hmm. But Oyasa says that as a result of all of this, they've left behind fear, and particularly fear of death. Mm-hmm. He says, it's the bent one, the lord of your world, who wastes your lives and befouls them with flying from what you know will overtake you in the end. If you were subjects of Maleldil, you would have peace. This, uh, the language reminds me of Wordsworth, more like a man who flew from a thing he, he feared than one who sought the thing he loved. Um, I think that that may have been in Nutting, uh, Wordsworth's poem, and it's all about desire. I was going to say, there's, there's like a ton here that I think is incredible. Mm-hmm. I didn't even catch this on the first reading, but as, as David was going through this and I was looking at this, you know, I, was, I was thinking there's a couple of things that came to my mind, but first of all, this idea of intelligence versus wisdom. I mean, he remember how he talks about in the beginning of this chapter, you know, you, you know how to do the things like the space travel and you understand the bodies and you know, there's an intelligence there. But then mm-hmm. notice right here how he says when when the bent one from our world tried to to bring war on this, that he he put into their minds that they were wise enough to see death. So he's essentially saying we we and I love this language he uses here, but not wise enough to endure it. In how much in our life? Because I was going to ask this is going back to the very beginning the thing that I was going to ask, but I was waiting till here. But the one thing we left behind us on the Harandra was fear. I was going to ask, what is this fear? You know, mm. I get, we all know what fear is, but usually fear is of something. And so is there something here that they're trying to articulate there's a fear of? And at the core, I thought fear of death, based on what was perceived in the beginning, is probably the primary fear, but you could also put some secondary ones, a fear of the unknown. But the reason I wanted to stop here too, because I didn't catch this until you just read it, David. Some I cured, some I unbodied. I assume unbodied means killed. Mm-hmm, but yes. the language of unbodied is a really different way to speak of death when you have eternity. It's not actually killing someone. And how if imagine if we approached our world today with this idea of just calling death unbodying. Like how transformational would that be to so many different situations? Mm-hmm. And I didn't even realize that when I was reading it until he said that. But I just think there's there's a lot here that's just we don't need to necessarily beat this home, but I just, you know, listeners, this chapter here, this idea of a fear of death, but a wisdom to be able to a knowledge of death, but a wisdom to be able to endure it and unbodying and get rid of that fear and trusting in eternity. And I don't know, I just think I profound to me (laughs) well and as i'm sure matt you were about to say at the very end of the last battle in the chronicles of narnia (laughs) the book uh, he hasn't read i know also uncle Um, andrew is that from a book i haven't read yet because that doesn't sound familiar to me yeah you're gonna be getting that soon don't worry that's a good one there'll be lots of memes that can come that can come out of it yes (laughs) great which reminds me one time uh, I was over for tea at Walter Hooper's house, and he had a cat called the Blessed Lucy of Narnia, named after the beatified uh, Lucy from Narnia in Italy. And as Walter was in the kitchen preparing the tea, he said, Blessed Lucy, go visit your Uncle Andrew. <laughs> Great. Thanks, Walter. But at the end of the last battle, as they're racing up further up and further in, um, uh, Lucy, of course, who always sees, because seeing, as we finally discover and understand fully until we have faces, 
seeing is crucial to Lewis. She says, has anybody noticed that they can't feel fear? So once they get into Aslan's country, they're unable to feel fear. And so fear, I think, is part of our fallen condition. And as we'll see in Paralandra, I don't think that she has fear. Um, she gets close, but fear, I think, is a product of sin. And that's something that um that I think Lewis is underlining underlying here. Die before you die. There is no chance after. See, I, I don't even need to make the case anymore because David's making the case for me. <laughs> well, in, in the last quote I'll say from this section before we move on, I know David had this in his notes. It is the bent one, the Lord of your world, who wastes your lives and befouls them with flying from what you know will overtake you in the end, meaning death. If you were subjects of Maladil, you would have peace. Yes. I mean, there's a lot of wisdom right there in that sentence. I mean, how much of our life is spent worrying about death when it's really just unbodying? If we focused on living. And subjects, <laughs> subject meaning to throw oneself under the mercy, right? Mm. Um, he's mercy. using that like word that. deliberately. But, you know, Weston rejects the word that... um. Uh, he says, uh, oh, he says, um, you all talky-talky. <laughs> you know, um, my God is, you know, uh, our, our goals are stronger and more powerful. And he rejects the talky-talky. And it's an implicit rejection of the wisdom of the word. And for him to disparage language and for Ransom to embrace it shows their closeness to the living word, to the logos, to Christ. Well, also notice how he, he I like the bent one better, me on his side. But also notice how he paints a picture of this personified bent one that's not a red hot Satan sitting in the coals of hell with his spear and trident. Like that's really easy for us to reject that imagery. But here, when we we have a different imagery of this individual that's just trying to forward humanity and to put together when you when you see a different, it, it makes it more of an appealing counter to to god and i almost think there's something powerful in what lewis is saying here like the alternative worldview the satan-esque worldview is actually harder to reject than we think on the surface there's an appeal to it well and we just read the last of the screw tape letters in my class and um the the big great tragedy is when the patient finally realizes who screw tape is and so mm. it's not the devil you know hiding in the in the coals in the corner in the red suit um and that's part of what uh what's going on here is is oyarsa is kind of showing them clearly well so oyarsa concludes his interview with weston and divine and he says that he will learn everything else he needs to know from ransom but rather than kill Weston and Divine, they are to be banished from Malacandra, and they leave the following day. Why does Weston object to this ruling? Well, that was an appropriately timed thunderclap. <laughs> the real problem for Weston is that Earth and Mars are now millions of miles further away from each other than they were when they performed their last trip. And not only that, apparently the solar rays that they used to travel, they're going to be different. And even if they do make it, there's unlikely to be enough oxygen and Weston actually announces that he'd prefer to be killed now. But when he's pressed, he says, I think we could possibly do it in 90 days. And so Oyasa provides air and food for the ship. But in order to make sure they never return, he's, the, the ship is set to basically self-destruct upon landing. And he reminds Weston that he has the ability to destroy any future ship as soon as it leaves Earth's orbit. 
See, and between this and the conversation about how they could have um, they could have built ships, I think one of the things that Lewis is doing here is suggesting uh, pushing against the science fiction genre, which said we'll either find creatures who are so advanced they'd come in their ships and destroy us and dominate us, or they're so servile they don't they can't build ships and then we can dominate them. And it's that same sort of mindset where he doesn't give credit to a merciful God working with people and their great gifts um, all throughout the solar system. And so I think Lewis is writing a different kind of science fiction here, and I'm here for it. So as Oyarsa resumes his conversation with Ransom, do we have any final thoughts? Wow. I really hope the recording picked that up because that was terrifying. Oh, it definitely did. I heard that <laughs> I'm uh, sure strongly. it did. Um, I'm just trying to figure out, is that God disproving or approving of what we're doing here? That was like right when you said the recordings. <laughs> he's improving, but he's also saying, get moving. We got another episode to do. <laughs> <laughs> he's on the side of Batesian rigidity. <laughs> well, the only thing I wanted to say is, uh, in, since in this episode, we've heard the full articulation of Weston's plan and Oyas's critique of that plan. I'm reminded of this line from the brothers Karamazov. I love humanity. It's people I can't stand. <laughs> Let me suggest that maybe it's not God on the side of Batesian rigidity, but vice versa. That's You may have that topsy-turvy. <laughs> uh, I don't know. The thunder and lightning's near you. Uh, it imitates the, <laughs> uh, the, the, the firmness of God. So um, The only thing, other thing I would say, too, is, is listeners, this, this chapter really bought, brought to the forefront the differing worldviews. And Lewis is we're, we're going to see in the last chapter, that's not the next one, but the one after the kind of prologue or whatever you call it, um, epilogue. Postscript. Postscript. He, he is really combating a seductive worldview. And so I think just ask ourselves, what is that today? You know, there, there's already just very direct overlaps of what's being written today that we see in, to, in the conversation that we had from this, which was written 50 actually more like 70, 80 years ago, 90 years ago. There's direct connections. But then there's just also what would be the the, the variation of that worldview today that could be quite mm -hmm. seductive, the Western worldview that, mm -hmm. that could be plaguing our minds in a subtle way. And in what ways can we learn from Ransom to, to combat that? I think this chapter really brings that to the forefront. That's just something to maybe turn this podcast off and ponder for 15 minutes. You know, you don't want to... Reading without processing is like eating without digesting. You know, you want to make sure you bring those together. So as you listen to this, it could be good to, to process a bit, synthesize. Yeah. Well, and I think that's part of what, why Lewis's fiction is so fresh. Here's his first fiction 85 years ago and the clearness of the thought. And in fact, the similarity in some of the worldview that's still here today um, is, uh, is, is, is quite apparent. Well, what a great conversation. I look forward to our next episode. Uh, let's end with a question of the week. Um, gosh, uh, David wrote one and then I had one. I think David's is probably better. So we'll go with that. How might you try to argue Weston away from his current philosophy of life as an apologist, as an evangelist, as a Christian bearing witness to the truth? How might you try to unbend some of Weston's bentness? Uh, how might you capitalize on his love for humanity, on his selfless interests, and uh, and bring him closer to Christ? So, 
Feel free to email us, of course, always, contact at pintswithjack.com and use the contact us form on the website or comment on social media, on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter, on YouTube, I'm sure. But just now I hear the uh, the call. And because we're getting, uh, we're doing another episode, it's not a last call. It's a call to get your next uh, drink. So it's fill up, fill up uh, <laughs> is the call. Andrew says this. And they still have to wait a week. <laughs> we don't, though. We don't. We wait about one minute. <laughs> yeah. But it was what you were saying, actually, Matt. Don't just hasten on from it. Fill up. Let it so- soak into it and uh, and spend some time thinking about how that might make us um, uh, better citizens of heaven in the world in which we live. Well, uh, with that uh, fill up, fill up call, we want to fill up our mouths and our hearts with thanks, especially for Taylor Schroll, our, uh, our, our matchless engineer, for all our Patreon supporters, and in particular, our top tier supporters, including Matt 1 and Matt 2. There's space for a Matt 3, but I don't want to jinx it. <laughs> um, Jake, Erica, and Marvin. Joelle, Deborah, Amanda, and Emmy. Thomas, Bill, Joanna, Bud, and Shane. Kay and Paul, Kimberly and Gillis, Gary, Stephen, Kelly, Chris and James, Kate, Peter, David, Angela, and Rowdy. Every Tuesday, we pray for our listeners and all of our prayer requests in our Slack channel. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend, spread the word. And please join us next time. When we'll continue going further up. And further in. Saudi. 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 Cheers. Cheers.